Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots and forgotten American taxpayers to the one and only Conservative Review podcast, your only source of truly independent conservative news and views here on this Friday. And thank God it is Friday. Um, I am just done. I am done from this week. Very busy week, very frustrating week, uh, exhilarating week, but frustrating as well. Yesterday, I gave you guys the whole truth, the full truth, and nothing but the truth. It wasn't sugar-coated. I gave you a vision of candidates we should not be supporting. Candidates that all too often the swamp has unfortunately even gotten the president to support. And why, rather than draining the swamp, we're often refilling it, and then we scratch our heads after a certain budget fight, legislative fight, election fight, and we wonder why we're caught with Tweedledee Tweedledum, and we forget that there were more auspicious opportunities to move the ball forward, and we just slept through them. So today, I'm going to present to you the positive side of this. What should we be looking for? You know, are there candidates that actually represent the forgotten American taxpayer? And what what I mean by the forgotten American taxpayer is those of us who want to be left alone. We don't want government distorting our markets, creating artificial monopolies for special interests, but we want them to focus on their core jobs, which is protecting us from crime on a national level, protecting our borders, prioritizing our national security, in other words, America first, not other people's national security, but ours, our homeland security, to protect our values from the onslaught that we're seeing from the left every day, and to provide that bold contrast to what is endemic of the entire political class. Obviously the politicians, but also the cultural institutions where it just seems like people like us just don't have a voice. We don't really have representation. And whereas we had President Trump, who really seemed to tap into that, but because the Republican Party as a whole has not changed much, because it's not like you have a whole bunch of Donald Trumps up and down the ballot for governor, for Senate, for House, even even state legislature in a lot of places, really things aren't moving forward on a lot of fronts. But on the other hand, With the Democrats in chaos, with the Democrats becoming more and more radical, there really is an opportunity for someone to come in and win back those suburban voters, win back the hearts and minds of really every voter, and certainly satisfy the base of of conservatives who so badly want a modicum of constitutional governance. Where could we find that? So as I promised... I'm going to leave no stone unturned in trying to offer a platform to candidates that have at least demonstrated some sort of promise on on these fronts. And while most of my colleagues seem to be intrigued by Democrat primaries, which really, again, I find that very puzzling because we have our own primaries that are beginning very soon that will determine the outcome of Trump's second term whether it is a really effective term or whether we meet a lot of the same frustrations 
we've had with the problematic Congress the first two years when Republicans controlled all three branches. One of these districts that, A, if Republicans are going to win back the House, and B, if they're going to win back the House with the proper candidates, one of those districts we really need to focus on is Virginia's 7th District. This is Central Virginia, the Richmond, Virginia area, but extending out northward in several other directions, all the way to Culpeper. And this was the district uh, Dave Bratt won his famous victory in 2014. Dave Bratt was really an independent conservative voice. Uh, he was not a dyed-in-the-wool hack for any one political party. But last cycle was a very bad year for Republicans. The Republican Congress did nothing. And they kind of had all the liabilities of control, but didn't really have much of the benefits to, to show the people of what they accomplished. And he got swept out by someone named Abigail Spanberg. Now, Abigail ran as a moderate and said, no, I'm different. She actually yelled at Dave Bratt in one of the debates for um, trying to tie her to Nancy Pelosi. And as it turned out, of course, as we knew, she is inseparable, inseparable from Nancy Pelosi and the left. And, I mean, not a single issue does she dissent on in a meaningful way. So the primaries are coming up. The Virginia primaries are in June. Virginia is also a very pivotal state. It's a state that was red, it turned purple, and now the Democrats swept you know, all levers of power, and it is, may as well be California, New York, Maryland, and they're pushing all the social, fiscal and security liberal policies that are native really to California. And we're seeing this in Virginia. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. One of the candidates running is Nick Freitas. Nick Freitas, as some of you remember, he was on my show two years ago. If you want to look it up, it was a very engaging discussion. Episode 199, it was from March 2018. Nick served in, in the military. He, he was in the 82nd Airborne Division. He was Green Beret. And then he has been in the state legislature, the House of Delegates in Virginia for several years. And one of the things that has intrigued me about him, and I, I know some of you have seen videos from him speaking in the legislature, is that when you look at Republicans and Democrats, you see this dichotomy where Democrats, they pound that lectern. They believe, they believe, they believe in what they want to do. They're emphatic about it. They speak to the morality of their immorality. Yet when you look at Republicans, it's almost like looking at someone with a sex change operation. It's kind of, well, is that a male, a female? I mean, what is that? Uh, they, they accept the premise. Well, yeah, we're separating uh, the kids at the border. We're sorry. Well, you know, maybe, you know, not do abortions quite like this. Um, yeah, we kind of spend too much money, but I'm not going to do anything about it. And you, you, what you see is a lot of diffidence a lack of confidence in their views, because frankly, a lot of them don't really share our values. You look at a guy like Nick Freitas, and you actually see, wow, that is the opposition time. Who is claiming time in opposition for the forgotten taxpayer? Well, that's Nick Freitas. So it's an honor for, the, for not the first time, but really the second time, but first time in a while, to bring Nick back on. Nick is running for Congress. Hey, how you doing, Nick? Doing great. Thank you for having me on. All righty. So you, you heard my opening monologue there. Um, look, I'm going to knock you off your campaign talking points right away. Um, because we had such a good conversation last time, and I know what you're capable of, 
I'm going to grade a, grade with a tough curve here. And um <laughs> I'm I'm going to ask you you know, the 800 pound gorilla in the room. So, you know, typical hosts will say, "All right, look, the Democrats are terrible. Oh my gosh, look what they're doing especially in Virginia. Look what they're doing nationally. Bernie Sanders, they're off the wall. They make Obama look like a John Bircher. Um, you know, all, all we got to do is win back the House, Trump get reelected, and we're off to the promised land. But as you well know, there was something called the 2016 elections. And I know a lot of people have political amnesia, but it wasn't that long ago. Um, in fact, it was only, what, 12 months ago, 13, 14 months ago. They had the trifecta of control. They had the House, they had the Senate, they had the White House. You had a president that ran on a lot of very unique themes. You had a Republican Party that voted for him. And really, if you look at the the vote share of both Trump and Ted Cruz, it accounts for roughly 70 to 90 percent of primary voters in any given state in the 2016 elections. And both of those individuals were not favored by the party establishment. And clearly, the, the, the Republican voters wanted a change in direction. But what happened was Trump would introduce a conservative budget. It went nowhere. And they passed the most liberal budgets, literally blowing out Obama's spending levels by 13 percent, which to be fair, Obama dealt with a deep recession. This is the lowest period of unemployment ever, and revenue is high. We, they did nothing on defunding Planned Parenthood. We had the worst border problem ever for about 18 months. Now it died down, but there's still a lot of problems, and they did nothing. We had the worst judicial usurpations of all time, and they did nothing to even clamp down on the lower court power, which Congress has plenary authority over. Congress creates the courts. Um, nothing on religious liberty. Nothing on anything. Anything. The tax cuts was, were the one thing. Nothing on welfare reform as they promised. Here's the question I have for you. What exactly do you hope to do on the other side, on the light at the end of the tunnel, even assuming the best outcome that the president gets reelected, Republicans take back the House? Yeah, no, it's a fair question. And I'm not going to sit here and make the argument that, well, you have to give the Republicans the majority because the Democrats are so much worse. I mean, that, that might be you know, objectively true on certain levels, but it's certainly not good enough. Um, what I hope to accomplish is this. I hope to accomplish you know, the, the idea that if you actually go up there and you do what you say you're going to do, and, and many times that includes holding your own party accountable. And I've done that at the state level before. I've had those very uncomfortable conversations where leadership is saying, Nick, you need to vote this way. And I'm explaining to them why I'm, I can't vote that way. I'm not going to vote that way. And I'm actually going to get up and speak against what they want me to vote for. Like I've, I've had those conversations. And what I found is, is that when, when you actually have a, you know, a modicum of courage to get up there and say, I am going to legislate and I'm going to vote and I'm going to speak exactly the way I campaign. It doesn't mean you're going to get everything through. It doesn't mean you're going to become super popular with leadership overnight. But what it does do is it gives people a contrast. And what I found is that people want to see that contrast, especially Republicans. They, they are tired of, of having representatives who think that their only responsibility is to show up and occasionally vote correctly. <laughs> they want to see people making an argument and not just a good economic argument or a social argument for what we believe, but a good moral argument for what mm. we believe. And, and when you do that, 
people will show up. They will support you. They will help you get reelected. They'll help you overcome hurdles that, that might seem insurmountable without a bunch of money coming in from, from the usual suspects. And that's what it's going to take. I mean, I, I, I wish I had a simple answer. I wish I could be as confident that as long as we take back the House, everything will be fine. But it's not just about taking the House back with Republicans. It's about taking the House back with candidates that actually have a deep philosophical conviction to the concepts of individual liberty, of free markets, of property rights, of personal responsibility, of, of recognizing that just because something might sound like a good idea doesn't mean that the Constitution has authorized the federal government to do it. And, and unless we have people that deeply understand that, then the moment they get to Washington, D.C., of course they're going to be turned because it's so easy to turn. It's so easy to be, um, you know, tempted in to going along to get along. And, you know, you hear the same message like, well, you know, Nick, look, people don't really understand. This is just the way it works. This is how you need to do things. You know, if you want to get something accomplished, you really got to be a team player. And, and I really feel like we're at a point right now where, no, what we need to do is actually show the contrast in the two different worldviews that are really competing for the hearts and minds of, of American citizens. Are we going to be a country that values individual liberty and constitutionally limited government? Or are we going to be a people that is, is constantly looking for the government to micromanage our lives? And I'm sorry, I, I don't see a lot of coexistence between those two worldviews. So that's what I intend to do is go and not only vote the correct way and carry good legislation, but to make the argument in the hopes that if, if I, if I do my job, right. And that's all I got to do. I got to do my job at my time and place. And if I do that well enough, then I can convince enough people that we can get enough people that share those philosophies to run. We can get the voters to actually demand more out of their representatives. And I, I'm looking at the long game. And I, I think that's what we have to start doing if we're really serious about changing the direction that the country is going. So what I sense what you're saying is that obviously, you know, as a vote, you'd be one of 435 votes, but you're talking about not just being a vote, but a voice, a voice that um, to get on the radar, because again, the forgotten American taxpayer who wants safety, security, sovereignty, stable civil society, the proper balance of the government, meaning three branches of government at a federal level, not one, aka the judiciary. And um, and obviously the states in their respective roles, meaning that the federal government gets to control the whole of the sovereignty, a.k.a. You know, that's where the sanctuary cities come in. They have no right to do that. Whereas but the states get to control election law, life, marriage, you know, all the stuff that the courts, the federal courts are taking away from them. But the problem that I'm seeing is that we're not getting on the radar, like you're saying. So, for example, they don't really do much legislating anymore. What happens is everything really gets caught up in the end of year um, omnibus CR budget bill. That's really everything. And what 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 I saw happened again. I, I don't want to talk about now because it's very easy to say, "Oh, Nancy Pelosi." But again, just 13 months ago, we had Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy. So what happened was this: they had um, the Senate. They had President Trump's veto pen, which is extremely powerful. The founders, actually, uh, fellow Virginian George Mason, was scared that it would make the president um, uh, a dictator because he was saying governors really extorted everyone from it. And what a joke. The veto pen has barely been used. And the thing is, um, remember, we were told, oh, look, you know, the Democrats have the Senate. There's nothing we can do. The Democrats have the President Obama. There's nothing we can do. Well, what we were told is the Democrats have a minority in the Senate. So there's nothing we can do. So what happened was they wouldn't even present the alternative. So, you know, that when you control the House, you have 100 percent authority with a simple majority. Um, very easily you could pass whatever you want. 
and they wouldn't even initially pass out of the House a bill that cut the Department of Education, all this stuff, much less expanded by 13, 15%, defund Planned Parenthood, fund the border wall, and more importantly, really, interior enforcement. We have 3 million criminal aliens, 5,000 deportation officers, one-fourth the size of the NYPD. That, you know, as a conservative, we both probably agree, most problems are policy problems. Immigration is no different. But on that front, we really do need more money there. That's one of the, one of the things we do. And nothing, 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 nothing. Immediately, well, there's nothing we can do. The filibuster is going to be a government shutdown. And, and, and they're going to say this again. I'm telling you they're going to say this again. That is the linchpin. Don't sit and wave a flag about a wall and Planned Parenthood because there's really one fulcrum to making that happen. And it's exactly that process. So, you know, what I think someone like you needs to do is get together a group of members that are going to lay down that marker and President Trump will follow that. Whereas if that doesn't happen, what history has shown is he'll sign the most conservative budget and he's willing to do that. But, you know, if both parties get together in Congress and and send him a bad thing, he's going to sign that as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's I think that's correct. I mean, one of the things, and, and again, we can all argue all day long about individual political figures and whatnot, but if you look at the contract with America uh, in, in the mid-90s, the, the beauty of that was that it laid out very, very objective goals that they were going to meet within a set period of time. Elect us, and we will do this. And they largely accomplished a significant portion of it. And um, I, I think that's what needs to happen now, is it's about look, we're going to do this and we're going to do it within this time period. And we're not going to say that oh, well, you have to give us this or you have to give it that. We're going to say this This is our goal. This is what we're going to drive to. And we're going to do everything that we possibly can to make that, to accomplish that. And we're not going to accept people wanting to constantly come in and, and cut away off of it. Because that is the problem. That is why people are so frustrated, I think, especially with, with Republicans at this point, is we gave you the presidency, we gave you the House, we gave you the Senate, and you still didn't do it. You still didn't do it. And, and it's fascinating to me. And you see this within political culture all the time where it's this idea that, well, OK, well, look, we can't go too far. We can't go too fast. We got some people in difficult districts. They barely won their seats. And I'm thinking to myself, why the hell did you run for office in the first place? <laughs> if you didn't run for office to actually affect the sort of positive change that you were promising your constituents, then what are you? Are you a, are you a liar? Are you a sham artist? I mean, what is it? And, and, and here's the thing, Nick. Nick, I'm sure we're not arguing to overturn 100 years of from FDR and the Great Society, even though we have some issues with it. They're very simple issues like funding border security and not funding neo-Confederate sanctuary cities. I mean, that's like an 80-20 issue. You look at the Richmond suburbs. I mean, you're talking about you could even be an immigration expansionist, but we're talking about other countries' criminals, exclusively people that in addition to being here illegally and being deportable, have gone into jails and committed other crimes, and we know recidivism is a huge problem, we have to deal with our own people, and you're bringing, I mean, that's such a winning issue, they won't touch it. They did nothing. But here's part of the problem. These guys are, I mean, a lot of our people are afraid to make an argument, and and I hear this all the time, well, the press is going to tear us to pieces. I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, guess what? That's been going on for decades now, right? It, get on social media, go around the press, go directly to the people, and a lot of people don't want to take the time or energy to do that. I mean, we have because we had to. You know, I would give a floor speech, and one of the papers would completely misrepresent what I said, and so we go around to social media, and the next thing we know, 100 million people have seen the speech, 
And now we've got a following that we can go back to and inform on what's going on in mm. order to make the argument. But, but part of it, too, is this, right? You have Republicans that they may be they may be adequate and making an argument to their base, but then they don't know how to make an argument which actually appeals to a broader audience. Yeah. So let me just use an example. Department of Education. Republican will get up at a, at a committee meeting and be like, you know, we need to abolish the Department of Education. Now, look, you look at Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. Yeah, why, why is the federal government trying to micromanage education? Why is it trying to constantly interfere? And it doesn't make sense. But if you tell an audience that, that quite frankly, isn't all that familiar with Article 1, Section 8 and thinks that the Department of Education just needs more funding for their child in school, that's not going to be a message that resonates. But if you go to that same person and you say, look, do you think it's fair to your teachers that they have to spend 20 to 40 percent of their average week not focused on your child but meeting federal and state mandates? Well, of course not. Hey, do you think it's a good idea for us to rip millions of dollars out of communities, send it up through a huge federal bureaucracy, only to send a little bit of it back with so many strings attached that it can't even be effectively implemented? No, I don't. Okay, did you realize that that's what the Department of Education is doing right now? And if we could just limit what they're trying to do and get that money back into the communities, or not better yet, don't take it from the communities in the first place. Your teachers would be paid better. Your students would be getting a more quality education. That's all we're talking about doing. That's the sort of thing where somebody that doesn't have an initial, you know, frustration with the, the you know, kind of constitutional usurpation of, of the Department of Education can look at it and say, no, I understand that. That makes sense to me. Why, why would we rip monies out of communities that need it only to bring it back with a bunch of federal mandates that teachers don't want? And, and that's what we need to do with a variety of issues, whether we're talking about the Second Amendment, whether we're talking about the life issue, whether we're talking about taxes or regulatory reform. We need to find those issues and we need to make them. You never change your principles. Yeah. You just find a way to make the particular issue relevant to the person that you're talking to based off of their own unique experiences. And it's not that difficult if we just take the time. But it's so much easier to just fall in line with what people want you to do and what they expect out of you. And, and that is how people that is how people end up, I think, getting. Oh, my gosh. That, that you, you just really just struck me there. It's so much easier. You, you articulated something that I couldn't put my finger on, but I, I think I, I think this is what you're expressing. And, and this is kind of my concern where we're headed. So what's in there's an interesting dynamic. If we had Republicans like you, the fact that Democrats have become so extreme and liberal would actually be a blessing because it would provide a bolder contrast and a greater opportunity to demonstrate and accentuate their radicalism and the harm of their policies and to provide that contrast and go in an alternative direction. But because we don't have Republicans like that for the most part, what's happening is, and, and I'm, I'm really very concerned about this, that the Overton window is shifting inexorably to the left. So what's happening is, that the more the, le the the Democrats go to the left, what Republicans are doing, and this is, and, and I want to talk about healthcare is very a very vivid example of this. So Republicans are they they they'll take the most evident and extreme elements of the most extreme parts of the Democrat Party and what they're saying, and it's very easy to kind of say, oh, that's communism, socialism. Oh, look, look what they're doing, ah, and they know it's not going to be popular. But then they privately accept everything until that goalpost. So with healthcare, it's like 
You, we're not going to let the government take over health care. Um, dude, I got news for you. Based on everything the government did before Obamacare and now with Obamacare that Republicans have literally accepted, not just John McCain, it was all of them accepted everything except for the individual mandate, the entire Medicaid expansion, guaranteed issue, community rating, which has created endless monopolies for um, the big healthcare conglomerates, boxed out private practice. We stopped talking about this stuff. Republicans have, I mean, you know, you know this very well from the Virginia legislature. Republicans have accepted all of this. So Obamacare is now, they're owning the status quo. Like, you better not change, like, as if we like the status quo and we shouldn't. We should be railing against it. But I just don't want Bernie. But but then then in five years from now, I mean, we're, we're going to be accepting that thing. And then it's like, well, well, Bernie wants to, or the next Democrat wants to do that. How do we draw the line in the sand and reset the baseline? Well, and I think part of the problem is just actually identifying where the baseline is. And, and that's why I say the philosophy component of this, you know, you get, a lot of times when you talk about politics, people want to focus on the, the policy aspect. If you, if you don't have some sort of coherent philosophy that you're operating from, you know, any policy that seems popular at the time is, is going to seem attractive to a mm. politician that ultimately wants to get reelected. And, and it's amazing because I, I people will come up to me and they'll say, Nick, look, I, I've got this idea. Here's this problem. And, and this is the policy. I mean, this is a bill you could support. Right. And I'll look at him like, well, look, I agree. This is a problem. And I agree that what you're trying to do is, is an interesting concept. But no, I can't support I can't support the bill. And they'll say, why not? I'm like, because it's none of the government's business to do what you're attempting to do. This would be a great business plan. This would be a great plan or a mission statement for a civic organization to get out there and actually work on this. They said, but let me tell you what's going to happen if you implement this into law. First of all, what you're saying is you're, you're, you're telling the body politic that no longer do we want, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people to work together in voluntary cooperation to come up with creative and innovative, innovative ideas to address this particular problem, which might have very, very you know, stark regional differences. You're now saying, no, 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 we're going to solve it through this government bureaucracy. So, so that's, that's the first problem. The first problem is, is that you're not actually expanding the level of ideas that we take into account when we try to fix a problem. You're narrowing it. Then you're saying, this is the only way we're going to solve the problem, because this is the one that we're going to force you to subsidize. This is the one that we're going to force you to participate in. So now you, you've, you've actually introduced coercion to this situation. You don't want a diversity of ideas and approaches to the problem. You want the government approach to the problem. I said, and then ultimately what happens is, is as your government program expands, it will probably be over budget, behind schedule, and won't deliver on its promises. And instead of you coming back here and saying, gosh, you know, we thought this was a good idea, but now introspectively we decided that maybe this wasn't the best approach. No, what you'll say is the only reason it's not working is because you don't have enough money or power, <laughs> and you will go right back to my constituents demanding more of it. And the moment they get fed up, you're not going to come back and say, hey, I'm sorry. You're going to come back and say, you're greedy. You're mean-spirited. You don't like poor people because <laughs> if you did, then you'd give to this government program. And I'm tired of that. But if you don't have – again, if you don't have a coherent internal philosophy that you're operating from, then you're, you're basically going to stick your finger up in the wind and say, okay, which way the wind is blowing? What do the polls look like? Is this going to be good or bad for my reelection? And, and I'm tired of that. I would rather <laughs> – I'd rather lose an election than my integrity. I don't get my identity from being in elected office. I get my identity from being a Christian. I get my identity from being a husband and a father. I get it from being a, a, a combat veteran. You know, I, it's certainly an honor to serve in the House of Delegates. It would be an honor to serve in Congress. But ultimately, you're there to do a job, not get reelected. 
if you do your job correctly, then great. You, you should get reelected. But ultimately, that, that can't be the number one goal that you have is to manipulate your constituents into voting for you instead of actually doing what you promised them you would. Very well said, Nick. I mean, you look at the dichotomy between the parties in having that compass. And I find you're in a very, very good position to speak to this because you're in the belly of the beast. I think Virginia is the most telling state politically in the country right now. Why? Well, red states, okay, the Democrats don't officially have power, although Republicans often implement their stuff for them. Blue states, like where I'm at in Maryland, you got New York, New Jersey, California. It's been pedaled to the metal for quite a while. But what I find fascinating is Virginia. So yes, it has changed dramatically demographics, growth of government, brought in a lot of Democrat voters. But I think everyone agrees, if you look at the state in totality, it's still not California. And you would think there would be a little bit of reluctance or, you know, caution, judicious approach from the Democrats. No, they get in there and they believe. I'm shocked the minute they're in there. I mean, these guys think of everything. Let out the criminals, take the guns, um, let out, you know, harbor illegal aliens, criminal aliens, transgenderism. I mean, they, they check every box. And what's amazing is the minute they get trifecta control, even if it's not such a slam dunk state, like they're they're pedal the metal. Yeah, you look at Republicans. I was speaking on my show yesterday. Um, imagine Tennessee. Republicans control every statewide elected office. They have a 28 to 5 majority in the Senate and a 75 to 26 majority in the House. Wouldn't you love to serve in something like that, right? And uh, yeah, imagine that. Yet Nashville, Davidson County, is a sanctuary. And they're sitting with a five to one majorities, and they won't pass what Texas did to prevent sanctuaries. Yet they're bringing in more dubious refugees in this very broken refugee resettlement program when Trump's idea of giving states power was really to reject it. Um, and they're passing all these criminal stuff that really is very similar to what New York is doing. I, I just don't get it. I mean, like, I, 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 because I, I do think I think that the, the Demo- because Democrats have made up in their mind that the way that you solve problems is through more government power and, and interference into people's lives. Um, I mean, it, it gives them first of all, it gives them a lot of negotiating room because when they show up saying, hey, I want to control your life. And you say, well, no, I don't I don't want you to do that. Like, OK, well, let me control half your life. Well, no. And they're like, well, why don't you compromise with me? <laughs> um, that, that's part of the that's part of the issue. They, they stick to their philosophy. But, I, you know, one of the comments I always make is when Democrats are in the minority, they act like they're they're in, they're in the majority. When they're in the majority, they act like there will never be another election cycle. And, and <laughs> one thing you've got to respect about the way that they conduct business is that they they truly believe in, in what it is that they're peddling. And so they're going to push it as far as they possibly can, because they honestly believe that, that if they do that, one, yeah. not only will they get reelected, but two, even if they lose the majority, they're confident that Republicans will spend all of our time just trying to roll back portions of their agenda. We might get 25 to 35 percent of it rolled back. And in the meantime, we're so focused on rolling back what they've done that we forget to actually do what, what we want yeah. to do. Because you're right, they've moved the Overton window. They've created the new normal, and we've got to. One of the th- one of the problems that we have as Republicans, we never focus on like an ultimate end state or vision on what what it is that we're trying to achieve. We're trying to maximize individual choice. We're, we're trying to, but if you don't provide people an idea of what that looks like, so one of the things I like to use is, is education as an example. 
right? We, we've got multiple generations now that have grown up in, in pretty much a government monopolized education system. So it's all they know. So when you when you say, well, look, we need to start pulling back some of this government interference in education and give people more choice, you're, you're taking away what they do know and what are you showing them in return? But if you can actually take the time to articulate, no, let me give you an idea of what it would look like if you had more control over how your education dollars were spent and how if, if you have a student that has, has special and unique needs, that you would be able to give them specific tutors instead of being forced in whatever government program that they provide you. Um, if, if you were a if you were a parent and your student had just an incredible ability uh, to do math or a real gift with music, you would actually be able to allocate education dollars in accordance with your children's strengths to set them up for future success and really allow them to chase their dreams and their passions and their ambitions. When, when you start to do that and you start to explain how it would look and you actually give them a vision of it, then you can start to move more into and these are the policies that we need in order to achieve that. And it combats the other narrative. But right now, I feel like we're fighting for a vision of something, whereas they're pointing to, you know, something that they're actually providing and saying, oh, well, they just want to take rid of your school. No, I don't want to get rid of your school. I want to give you the option to be able to create something or to be able to provide your child with something that is far better than what a government can mandate from Richmond or Washington, D.C., and, and that's the way we need to make these arguments if we're going to be successful. And again, we have to have a long-term vision. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no shock to me that when we talk to young people, we find that 70 to 80 percent of them have a more favorable view of socialism sure. than capitalism. But it's, beca- it's not because capitalism is a bad idea. It's not because we shouldn't argue for it. It's because they actually – they've only heard a caricature of capitalism. They've only heard a caricature of free markets. And, and by the same token, they've only heard this puppy dogs and lollipops version of socialism. So it, it's, about, it's about actually engaging with young people early on, not letting them go through you know, 12 to 14 to 16 years uh, of education, which is largely directed toward convincing them that the government is their best buddy. Um, you know, that, that's the sort of hard work that we need to put into place. It's not just about elections. It's not just about politicians. It's about popular culture. And, and it's about going back in and competing once again within movies, within TV, within arts and entertainment, within music, within journalism. All of these aspects are important. If we actually want to achieve the sort of changes that we want to see, we can't just rely on one, one or two election cycles. Or, or one or two uh, viral talking points, which has really become the fad. And no, really, I mean, even since I started out in this business, there's no deep thinkers. There's no vision. Um, I joke around for healthcare. I got to speak to my friend who's in the Ohio legislature. There's no one in Washington I could even speak to. And I want to turn to that because I think what you just said on education is doubly true on healthcare. Um, Often the problem is that I call it the slash and burn. They set time bombs in certain industries and blow it up. And then everyone forgets how it happened. And then they come in and say, this is terrible. Look, the market failed. We need more, more socialism when really nobody points out, hey, you guys created that. And healthcare is something they should have to own. What I find shocking, shocking is there is nowhere. I wrote a whole article and I, I'll send it to you and your staff. Um, it's very it's worthwhile to read how Bernie Sanders is a fake populist. And my point was it was basically marrying a populist message to free market constitutional populism in the sense that the, the, the free market view, particularly in healthcare, is the truly populist, so to speak, view in the sense that they are the ones who used the boot of government 
through the subsidies, market distortions, regulatory um, structure to create a monopoly and box out the consumer from healthcare. And that and Obamacare just sealed that. It exacerbated everything that existed before. So you have United Health, Cigna, Anthem, and two or three others on the insurance side. On the provider side, and, and they're actually mixing and, and merging now, but on the provider side, MedStar, a handful of others, rural hospitals are, are in the toilet now. Um, nobody is giving a vision of what healthcare should look like, why it doesn't look like that, and where it should be headed. And until we do that, Republicans, I mean, you know this, Nick, let's be very fair. It wasn't John, everyone's like John McCain prevented the repeal of Obamacare. It's not true. That was a repeal of the taxes and the individual mandate, which were really a side point. Um, and, and ultimately, they actually did wind up getting rid of that in the tax bill. The heart and soul of it, which was creating this monopoly, making insurance actuarially insolvent, Um and obviously, the Medicaid, which was a handout, it's so harmful to everyone. Um, they all agreed to it. There were literally 20, 30 House members that were on our side. Oh, no, I, 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 had, a, uh, I had a constituent. And she wanted to sit down and she wanted to talk with me because she she'd worked at a free clinic. And she wanted to know why it was we couldn't join every other major Western industrialized country in adopting government takeover of healthcare. And so I looked and I said, well, okay, before we get into that, I said, can you tell me what, what problems do you have with American healthcare? And she goes, well, drug prices are way too high. I said, you know what? I, I actually agree with you. I said, but did you know that the reason why drug prices are so high is because the federal government through the FDA makes it incredibly difficult to actually create new drugs. They make it incredibly difficult to compete. They grant near monopoly privileges to somebody for making almost no changes to a drug once they've actually created it. I said, so why do you want me to give more power over to the government entity that has created the problem you just mentioned? And she goes, okay, well, well, I have a problem with, the, you know, we don't have enough doctors and nurses. I said, you know what, that's another excellent point. And did you know that the federal government in the 1920s started working with other organizations to purposely restrict the number of people that could actually become doctors and nurses? It's gotten so bad that a few years ago, we had an equal number of people that were qualified to go to medical school get denied as we had people that actually accepted yeah. it. I said, so at the same time that we need greater supplies of doctors and nurses, the government has actively worked to reduce your supply. I said, so once again, why do you want me to give, give more power to the person that created the, and, and I go through this and I said, let me give you an example of how this could work. I said, you know, I was, in, I was a Green Beret. We had Green Beret medics. Green Beret medics were some of the most highly trained medics you, you, you can find in the military. Yeah. I said, these guys can go, when they're overseas, they can do veterinarian services. They can do geriatric services. They can, they can you know, do OBGYN services. Oh, and by the way, they can also fix a sucking chest wound under fire while calling in a nine-line medevac. <laughs> right? you know, these are the sort of things that these guys do. But if they get back to the United States and they wanted to come to your house for a house call and give your kids stitches when they fell off their bike, that would be breaking the law. I said, once again, it's because the government has intervened into medicine so much that prices have gone up and quality has gone down. And if you want a perfect example of what would happen if we actually had more open competition within the marketplace with respect to medicine, look no further than things like LASIK eye surgery. 
which five, 10 years ago would have cost you $2,500 per eye. Now yeah. it costs you $500 per eye, and it's a more quality service. How is it possible that the least regulated components of the <laughs> medical field are the only ones that are actually achieving better services at lower prices? It's because that's how the marketplace works. And if you would just stop punishing doctors, and even when you talk about indigent care, because that's what they always run to. It's like, what about the people that can't pay? I'm like, I got news for you. People were not lying around dying in the streets back before we had some of these massive programs because doctors and nurses just didn't care. In fact, you had a very, very robust charitable system where doctors had the freedom and nurses yeah. had the freedom to actually provide services at discount rates. If they do that now, they run afoul of federal law with respect to being able to take Medicare patients. I said, so you know, every single problem you're trying to solve in, in American medicine has been a result of government intervention into American medicine. Um, but a, again, when people have just gotten so used to the idea that the government is where I get my medicine or my job is where I get my medicine because oh, the government God. essentially dictated that. that. That's the biggest one, the job, the job thing. You, you, talk, you talked about with education, people that are into arts and music, why people can't pursue their dreams. It's one of the biggest tragedies. Everyone knows, I mean, not enough know how in the 1950s, government married, literally married um, health insurance, medical insurance to the job, which did two things. It tethered insurance to employment. But then what that also did was it, it tethered the insurance cartel to health care. And it made health care all about insurance because then it just flooded the market with that's what it was. So if you're an individual who's like, look, I don't want to be subsidized. I want to pay a fair share like anything else. I have a flat tire. OK, I got a medical need. I'll pay. But I don't want to be, be you know, hit with a five thousand uh, dollar bill for something that's really not rocket science. You're 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 out in the cold. And Republicans just I mean, this is a big problem. This was I'm just telling you it it wasn't about, oh, you know, we had one or two Republicans that were reluctant. It's not what it was. It was almost all of the Republicans, and they convinced the administration as well. They they signed on to the the premise of Obamacare, the premise of the subsidies, the Medicaid expansion, and and the, and the coverage mandates. Which that's the whole enchilada of what did all the destruction. And and my concern is that it's like, oh, do you want Bernie? Do you want Bernie? And you know, it might work in the short run. On the cheap, and I think people don't want it, of course, and you could defeat a guy like Bernie, but we're going to get in there and we're not going to roll back an inch of of even Obamacare, much less the pre-Obamacare problems and Tala and, and the, the employer um, uh, uh, tax exclusion and all this stuff. But we're going to keep expanding it in the bidding war. And look, one other thing I'd be remiss not to mention, not only are Republicans no longer rolling back even recent bad stuff that Democrats did – they're now in a bidding war for the new hypothetical things that people aren't really even clamoring for. So now it's a universal Republican and even conservative thing, I'm not kidding, to have a new entitlement that backfired in Europe and created a glass ceiling for women. It Really, there's a lot of problems with this. Um, this paid family leave business, a totally new entitlement. I mean, what's going on here? Well, and they, they, don't, they don't seem to understand. It's like you are disincentivizing companies from hiring women. That's yeah. what you just did, because you said that if you hire, so if you hire a man for the same job, you don't have to worry about the same family medical leave act as if you hire a woman. Now their solution is, well, we'll expand it to both sides. They said, okay, well now you've just made everybody more expensive to hire, which means you're going to have an increase in the price of products and services. Like this is none of this <laughs> happens in a vacuum. 
None of this happens in a vacuum. We had a bill the other day in the General Assembly where we had a Democrat actually carry a bill, and it passed the House, where it said that a, a renter, so if you, if you own four more properties, you could not discriminate against someone, and that's the terminology they use. You could not discriminate against someone based off of their source of income. So let me get this straight. I have to assume the risk of renting to someone already, and now you're saying that I can't use their source of income as a way to determine. I understand that you have a district where people need to find housing, and what you've just told renters in your district, or what you've just told people that actually have properties rent is sell your property and go somewhere else because you're going to have to assume a significant higher risk if you want to rent this property over here. You're actually going to distort the market in such a way that it's going to cause overall rent to go up. Because if I've got to assume higher risk based off of your ability to pay, I've got to try to make that up somewhere. Or I'm just not going to take care of the building because I can't afford to anymore. And and these are the things that never get thought about. It's always, Mm -hmm. I'm going to pass a law and people will behave exactly the way I want. No, people respond to incentives. (laughs) And, and, and that's what bothers me. Reverse incentive, they will result. They will respond perversely. And, and, and the thing is, I think young folks, especially, they appreciate abundance and choices. The, I mean, everyone, every poor schlepper in this world, you know, for all the talk, they know how to use Amazon. They know how to use the internet. It's funny, Heather McDonald of the Manhattan Institute, uh, she, she did kind of an undercover report in San Francisco with the homeless problem and the needles and the drugs and the feces. And, and she's like, even the people that were very much borderline mentally ill, they had those phones out and they they knew, they got done with bartering what they needed to do. And it's amazing that people, it works and it works more than ever but the few areas like education, higher education, especially healthcare, um, where the just things don't work, there's a reason for it, and no one's articulating that. Um, when you talk about market distortion, so with the paid family leave, uh, a National Bureau of Economic Research had an analysis in 2013 of the European countries that did this, and again, they found that women in countries with these programs in Europe were half as likely to be managers than in the U.S. Because of the market distortions. And another thing that's very interesting with that is that – so we already have – I love how one thing runs into another. Um, there's a couple of good examples. So f- we have the Family and Medical Leave Act, okay, FIMLA, where companies with more than 50 employer, employees have to um, hold open jobs for maternity leave for for at least 12 weeks, right? I mean that's – and they have to maintain – health insurance coverage. So even if, even if they don't get paid, we already have that, that they need to um, be held open and, and they're paying a substantial amount of health insurance benefits for 12 weeks. So now with healthcare being the dumpster fire that it is and the cost of insurance skyrocketing, right? Um, CBO just put this out, the employer share. See, a lot of people don't realize this. It's, it's gone up several thousand dollars um, per employee since Obamacare. So it, it's incentivizing workers to take even more time off while still being covered. Well, so that further depresses wages or, or disincentivizes employers from hiring women who are more likely to have children. I mean, this is what they keep doing. And another great example, you'll really appreciate this. So um, you have ethanol and cafe standards running into each other. So government has a great idea. All right, dude, 
well, you know, rather than than reap the rewards of God's blessing and abundance that I mean, it's unbelievable. The, uh, 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 you know, America's Hanukkah oil miracle, I always call it. We just the more we get, the more we discover, the more oil we get. No, screw that. We're going to have scarcity. We're going to be like the Soviet Union. It, this is it. Peak oil. So we got to reduce consumption. So the, they said we're going to make crappy cars made out of um, paper thin, which, by the way, uh, increases the cost of cars five, six, seven thousand um, per sedan on the average consumer. OK, at a very painful cost, they did succeed and they got consumption down. They really did. So now he, hold that thought. OK, another thing. <laughs> They had a great idea. See, there's some very wealth, wealthy conglomerates, not family farms. And just like with healthcare, where they boxed out individual practice where it's going to be abolished, they boxed out um, family farming. It's all a bunch of corporate interests um, run out of Manhattan and D.C., by the way. And they're getting subsidies under the new farm bill <laughs> to go and um, force consumers to put your odious and ineffectual product in my tank. Everyone has to do it. So now four out of 10 rows of corn grown in this country go in your tank. Okay, so now they got a problem here. They have a mandate that you have to blend, refiners need to blend X number of, um, you know, billion, 20 billion you know, gallons of ethanol into the fuel supply. And if not, they have to pay this extortion called RINs credits. But the problem is they don't even have the demand to do it because of the cafe standards made it that, that they're not even there. And I mean- this is stuff, vital products and goods and services, food, fuel. I mean, everyone gets this community. You know, I always talk about safety, community, drugs, gangs, criminal aliens. I mean, bring it back to the person. And damn it, Nick, I don't hear Republicans talking about this. Well, no, they, they, they don't. And, and like you said, it, it's not just about making the economic argument. It's about then tying that economic to the real world consequences that are going to affect everyday people. And and it's you know it's funny too that you mentioned the ethanol subsidies. And I actually there was there's several bills this year. I sit on the transportation committee now and in, in, um, the general assembly, and they are simultaneously passing tax credits for fuel efficient vehicles at the same time that the new transportation budget increases fees on fuel efficient vehicles because they don't pay enough gas taxes in order to maintain roads. <laughs> so they're, they're they're constantly doing these things. Um, and I'm looking here going. You guys got to recognize the contradictory nature of the policies that you're implementing. You know, it's not like one is being carried last year and one's being carried this year. No, they're, they're being carried simultaneously. We're voting on these bills within days of each other, and nobody seems to pick up on the contradiction. And like you said, nobody then ties it back to what does this mean? What does this mean for you? What does it mean for your neighbor? When the government engages in this kind of manipulation, and really what it is, is it's arrogance. Um, I, I you know, for for all the talk about, uh, you know, Democrats talking about how arrogant Donald Trump is. Donald Trump's not the one trying to micromanage the economy from Washington, D.C. Right. But I, I'm, I'm watching as Democrats stand up there that have no real understanding of the industries that they're trying to manipulate and, and micromanage. No experience in them. Never been in a position to, um, you know, have any deep subject matter expertise. But they think they are infinitely qualified. To, to pass yep. legislation, which is going to have a drastic impact on people. And it doesn't matter because, you know what, their intentions are good. Well, you know what, we don't legislate intentions. We write laws. 
And those laws are going to be interpreted and they're going to have consequences. And if you don't actually have a good understanding, I mean, we had a delegate on the floor the other day pass collective bargaining for public sector employee unions. She wouldn't even yield for a question. We just had some really basic questions like, my gosh, I see you've just added six floor amendments to this bill. Can you explain what they do? You know, what's the problem with this? <laughs> Why are you doing this? What do you think the impact of this is going to be? Are you going to compel workers to pay union dues or leave their job? You know, no, no questions. Just we had a committee hearing and, and we're done. Pass it. Like, are we a deliberative body or a dictatorial body? I mean, what's going on here? Yeah, it's actually funny because in Congress it's the same thing for all the talk about the Civil War and acrimony and it's deeply divided. I'm just telling you some of the biggest things they all pass. I mean, the NDAA, which funded everything, which authorized everything except for our own defense. It was border security everywhere else. It was mandating that government is not allowed to look into criminal history of employees. That was in the NDAA. Amnesty for 4,000 Liberians, 4,000 more Afghani SIVs. Um, I mean, they had a bunch of goodies in there. Oh, oh, paid family leave for federal workers because, again, I mean, that, that was in the NDAA, and and it, that that thing passed. I mean, Bernie Sanders voted for it. That's the that's the joke. He voted for it, and all the Republicans voted for it. Um, all this stuff. It, it just it's a joke. By the way, one thing you'll appreciate, and we got to end soon because my my uh, editors are going to kill me for this. And I know you you're in session, but you'll love this. Um, just to go back to ethanol. So Ron DeSantis, he's now governor of Florida, but he was a congressman um, for a couple years in 2015. So he offered an amendment to some bill to repeal the ethanol mandate. And what happened was he was told by CBO that it violated PAYGO because it increased the deficit. Well, how did it increase the deficit? Well, it decreased tax revenue. Well, how did it decrease tax revenue? So by alleviating consumers from purchasing diluted garbage fuel and allowing them to actually fill up their tanks with unvarnished gasoline, motorists wouldn't have to refill their tanks as much, and therefore they wouldn't pay as much in federal gas tax revenue. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. So they'll never admit that the ethanol mandate is garbage, but when it came to repeal it, they're like, hey, we're going to lose the tax revenue from it. I mean, it, it, it's unbelievable. No, it, it really is. And and that's what it's going to take is it's going to take more people shedding light on it. And, and, on, and I'm going to be just brutally honest about this. What it means is that at this stage in the game, if you're one of the people that's willing to stand up and shed light on this stuff, you probably got a shelf life in politics. <laughs> but if you can go into it with the understanding that, look, you're going to pay a price for this. You're personally going to pay a price for this. But if you can cut back the weeds enough then the people coming after you will be able to get farther than you ever thought you could. And you know what? That's worth it. That's worth it. No, exactly. Um, we're, we're almost out of time and I should really end now. Um, man, it's, this is just, it, it's so, it's so engaging. It's so soothing. And I know my audience loves it. We'll have you back, but I have to ask you about the 800 pound gorilla in the room. There, there's one thing that if we don't deal with this, it doesn't matter who gets to decide the constitution. This is a very important problem. We have a system now that is in place that is erroneously practiced. That is not what our founders adopted. They adopted decompartmentalism, three separate branches of government, that each one must use their powers that intersect with various issues and people only in accordance with the Constitution. Yet, we have a system of judicial supremacism where any lower court, and certainly the Supreme Court, could, dis could decide with finality 
not just an individual case or controversy, but give bogus standing, violate the rules of standing to create a case and somehow resolve a national question. You had in Virginia last year, for example, great example, where states, I mean, we regulate every darn aspect of healthcare. But somehow when a state simply wants to have basic, basic um, requirements of abortion providers, and this is a law in the books in Virginia for decades, suddenly a judge say, I, I, I don't like that. I don't like that. Um, right as we are talking literally, and my brain is a little bit distracted, there is a member of Congress, one of the five or so good ones, that is texting with me, deciding, Daniel... You know, because we're working on, you know, legislation, I, I, I would say stripping the courts of jurisdiction, but it's not really accurate because they don't have jurisdiction over a lot of these issues. It's clarifying their powers. And he's asking me, Daniel, which judge is the first one we need to make an example of for impeachment out of all these that literally violate rules of standing statute? Um, I'm going to end my thought and get your comment with a vivid example. Let me let me give this example. Congress in 1996. A lot of people ask me, Daniel, why is it that every stinking deportation, everyone is caught up in the courts? Like, I mean, how is it you could break into a country and even the worst actors, it takes forever to get rid of them? I mean, no other country has that problem. It doesn't make any sense. And what I tell them is, well, actually, you're not missing anything. The law says what you're saying. In 1996, Congress recognized that you can't litigate your way out of an invasion. You can't have millions of, literally millions of people. There are 3 million criminal aliens targeted by ICE, meaning if you're targeted by ICE, that, that's pretty bad. You are a criminal alien. Yeah, you're, you're, not, you're not one of these cleaning ladies that, you know, says, hey, sus, and, you know, has a thing, is, you know, she's nice. Not doing, I'm not saying you're entitled to be here illegally, but I'm just saying you're not going to be targeted by ICE. So according to ICE's uh, fiscal year 2019 enforcement removal um, results, there are 3.2 million of these people. Again, and almost every one of them have a criminal record, The you know many more without it, 3.2 million that remain in this country at large out on their own recognizance. And you know the recidivism rate of crime. Other I mean, you want to talk about being pro-life. I mean, all these murders... Um, I had a great example yesterday. We have it in New York, all these examples. Anyway, Congress in 1996 passed a bill called IRA-IRA. That's the acronym of the legislation when Congress actually did stuff. And it said a very simple thing, that if you cannot demonstrate to, this, to the satisfaction of an immigration officer, not judge, officer, that you have not resided here consecutively for two years, you are removed immediately without any review by an executive administrative immigration judge, much less, much less an Article Three judge. They have no jurisdiction to hear the case. They have no jurisdiction to hear an appeal that you are wrongly put in ER, expedited removal. They, um, even if you are claiming asylum, if they turn that down and put you in ER, you have no removal. You, the only claim you could claim is that you're a U.S. citizen and they, you, you're wrongly targeted. Other than that, you're out. Trump says, I'm finally going to – so they didn't implement it because, you know, the um, administrations have just thumbed their nose at immigration enforcement. Yeah. Yeah, that garbage. Yeah. So Trump's like – you know, you and I, I think, are on the same page. We don't like executive actions. But the reality is what Trump has been doing – let's put aside guns. There's some 
funny stuff that DOJ did. But on immigration, legitimately, everything he is doing is finally implementing a very modest, like with the public charge, it was a very modest portion. There's still a tremendous amount of welfare. Um, they get Medicaid, school lunch programs, a lot of stuff. Very modest implementation of what Congress said you must do. Same thing with ER. Incomes district judges says, screw that. I'm going to hear the case anyway, and I'm going to say you can't do that. You're a member of Congress. Nick, what do you do? I think, I think in that case, I'm, I'm siding with the executive. And, and again, that's hard for me to say, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a big fan of overarching executive power. But the question is, is what is the president's authority under this? And what is the, the authority under the legislation? And, and look, I, I realize that we're probably not going to go back and refight Marbury versus Madison and then the whole you know, component of, of judicial supremacy or Maryland versus McCullough. Or but whatever. that was judicial review. That was judicial review, not judicial supremacy. Yeah, no, you're right. That was judicial review, not supremacy. But but it but it kind of I think it kind of laid the groundwork for it. for sure for sure the whole the whole, the whole issue that I the whole issue that I have with this is that we we've created a culture in the United States where people have this idea that it's the judicial branch of government that's responsible for interpreting and enforcing the Constitution. No, every branch of government is responsible for interpreting and enforcing the Constitution. Right. Obviously, the judiciary has judicial review powers. But if you look at the Constitution, the way it's originally written, it didn't mean that the Supreme the Supreme Court gave opinions. And those opinions were supposed to be respected because of, you know, the the, the office and the sort of people that would maintain it. And uh, and, you know, the, the arguments that they would make uh, with respect to their opinions. But more and more, we just see people where they'll pass anything or they'll try to enforce anything. And it's just a question of whether or not you've got enough, you know, politically motivated justices on the court that who are judicial positivists um, that think that their job is to essentially correct or write legislation from the bench. But 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 but, but Nick, I'm going to stop you there. They're doing it. So, again, statute says you are not allowed to hear this case. This has happened a lot where it's not just that they're wrong on the merits, that it's not a case or controversy, that foreign nationals cannot get valid standing um, to sue us for a right to immigrate. There is no right to immigrate. Um, but what I'm saying is even when Congress wrote a statute explicitly saying they cannot review it and they go and say, I'm going to review it, that's that's a fake case in controversy. Is there no limit? If a judge said Daniel Horowitz had, let, let's say I go to Trump um, and I say. I think the issue is, is that this is, this is where, and if you read the Federalist Papers, this is where the whole idea of, and I and I I don't particularly like to quote Andrew Jackson because when he made this quote he was actually horribly wrong, but he had said at one point the Supreme Court has made his decision now let's see him and enforce it. Now again he used that quote on something that was egregious because it had to do with actually removing Indian tribes that had every yeah. to be where they were at. But but the principle was from Hamilton in Federalist seventy eight that 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 they weren't giving the power of enforcement that wasn't a bug that was a feature that the executive branch has an just like meaning it goes in circles just like the judicial branch has an obligation to only issue judgments in concert with the constitution and not give effect for that let's say let's say you know we're going to criminalize anyone named Nick Freitas because he's a radical crazy let's say you know the virginia legislature passes that so it, you have the right to go to judge and say look you know i mean that that's that's a bill of attainder it's unconstitutional you can't do that so look i'm not going to criminalize you but likewise if if a judge says 
I'm going to say every state must give a dog and a horse a marriage license or 100,000 Somalis must be given visas every year. Well, that's an executive power. And if statute says the opposite, the president must not give force to that illegal ruling. Just like, I mean, because if you don't say like that, then it's not three equal branches of government. It's this one branch. He will last laugh, laughs last, laughs best. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and I, well, I think that's the part. The reason why the courts don't have any, any actual ability to enforce what they say, right, that's completely dependent on the executive branch in order to do that. And so I do think you get into this, and, and look, it's, it's a gray area, right? But you get into this area where it's like, okay, wait a second. If, if, this, is a, if this is such a clear and, and cut case of someone, again, of the judiciary overstepping their bounds, okay, well, well what is the constitutional remedy for that? Well, you can say put on better judges, you can say impeachment options, but ultimately it's because, well, the executive can, the executive or the legislature can both countermand their power by saying, look, you've engaged in overreach. Exactly. You can say, we're not going to enforce this, right? And then again, and, and then what's the countermand against that? Elections. If, if you don't like, if you think that the president made the wrong call, if you think that the courts were right and the president was wrong, well, then the next election cycle, you have the ability to countermand that as well. Matt, Madison literally wrote that. He literally wrote that in, in, a, um, in a letter, uh, that, that point that ultimately the people wind up – the body politic winds up deciding it. But the notion that any judge could say I, – I mean a classic example, classic example with the census. Remember, we're not talking about the, the executive branch putting a negative on an unalienable right. Like I'm going to execute someone. That's the ultimate immutable thing that you're doing to someone. Even if you're right, yeah, that's in the province of a judicial power to issue a judgment. So yeah, you're not going to go and execute the guy, even if it's a BS ruling, which there certainly are many. But when a court says, starts legislating positive things. So who writes the census interview, right? That's the executive branch, it's executive power. So when you have the Supreme Court, John Roberts said the following. Census asking citizenship is the core of the census in our history. It was done. It's statute. The president followed the APA also, you know, of proper administration procedural act of properly implementing it. Everything he said, constitution, statute. But uh, I, I don't think you maybe told the district judge the exact reason you're doing it. But here's the deal. Once you admit that there's no alleged statutory or constitutional violation, that is an illegal inquiry that's not a case or controversy. That was a very big problem. And the notion, see, the way I tell people is the way it would work is this. The executive branch would write up a census the way they want, that that they know, and and, and heck, the court even agreed. Now, what a court can do is, uh, under statute, if you don't, if you refuse to answer a question except for religious question, um, you can get fined. So then that John Smith says, look, I don't want to be fined. I think the executive branch is wrong. So yeah, a court could say, yeah, you, you, I have a judicial ruling here. You don't have to get fined. But the notion that it creates a broad policy, you, Virginia, must have 10 Sundays of early voting. Well, no, you judge, go get your fat rear end off the bench and man the polling there. Well, whoops, you don't have that power. I mean, I'm just telling you, Nick, if we don't do this, nothing is going to matter. No, no, I, I agree. I think, it, it, again, the reason why we put up competing sectors of power within, within our, our system was because we realized that without that competition, you're going to have people that engage in overreach. And, and you're still going to have people engage in overreach, but now there's some sort of counterbalance to it. And, and we're not only supposed to have that 
among the three branches in the federal government, but also among the states and the federal government yeah. as well. And, and I mean, we can get into, you know, classic conversations between the, you know, Virginia and Kentucky resolutions with Thomas Jefferson. We can, you know, you can talk about jury nullification. There's all sorts of different ways that we have to, to, to respond back to overreaches of power. But yeah, I don't think, I, I believe that the judiciary is a co-equal branch of government. It is, it is, but somehow in the, in the American psyche, it has taken on this notion yeah. that, well, when the court says something, that's the that's the yeah. ultimate arbiter of justice, <laughs> constitutionality. That is not true, and you will find that nowhere in the Constitution, or you find no. it in the Declaration of Independence or the Northwest Ordinance or any other part of Nothing, documents. nothing. We we understand that every branch of government has a you know a, a potential to move toward yep. corruption and expansion of its own power, which is why we have the other branches in order to compete against. Yep, they they rejected the Council of Revision which gave a veto power, but even the Council of Revision, remember, that was merging this, that, that was, they didn't yet conceive during the convention the veto. So you had a legislature, okay, now, well, now we need to check it. So they were groping in the dark to see what sort of thing. They didn't have the presidential veto yet. It was in lieu of the presidential veto, and also it was together with the president. That's what it was. So you had elected representation. But the notion that you would have something past the House and the Senate and the president signs it, you, you have a presidential veto, and then you go to an exclusive unelected judicial veto. And by the way, that was also – a lot of people don't realize that was when um, under that conception of the uh, Council of Revision, that was when the legislature was unicameral. A lot of people don't appreciate um, the the inherent check and balance on bicameralism. I mean, gosh, we could point to 90% of legislation in Congress and state legislatures that pass one and not the other. That's a very big deal. And especially under the original design that they were very different. The Senate was the states, the House is the people. It's very different. Um, also, also one other thing, just interesting thought, under that conception too, the legislature had veto, the um, Congress had veto over states, over state legislation under that conception. Very, very powerful um, unicameral legisl- uh, veto over the states didn't yet have even a presidential veto. So they're saying, hey, maybe the check will be the president and the judiciary together. I mean, and and even that they rejected. So the notion, I mean, it is, look, you know, Abraham Lincoln, this is what he said during the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Thus says the Lord, he made fun out of Douglas that he said, really, you're saying that you could rule that blacks are property rights and that states cannot, territories cannot vote, hold hold votes on this and he promised to as an executive to do differently and guess what that property so to speak he gave them passports um that's what he did and he emancipated them um he did not allow Roger Taney's Dred Scott to become a national principle um he promised it at the inauguration by the way while Taney was holding the Bible and had to eat crow and administer that oath of office and realize his impotence to Lincoln. Um, Again, I just go on this tangent because I know you are so well thought out and well spoken, but I'm just telling you, we need members to understand this because nobody really does. Well, and and I'll and I'll tell you, and I appreciate that, and I, I really appreciate the work that you put into this. Um, and, and again, you're you're allowing to have an in depth conversation. I, I go back to the the fundamental issue that we're seeing right now, and this is something that I think infects um, all of our politics. Is it's this over reliance on using the government to solve problems, and and that's really what this comes down to. It's it's, it's about once again convincing people, and and I use this example when you have the school wide walkouts over the Parkland shooting. 
And I said, you know, what, what really frustrated me about that was not students leaving school in the middle of the day. It wasn't them protesting. It wasn't the fact that the anti-gun lobby kind of took it over. My biggest problem with what we were telling students across the country was that if you really want to affect change, then you should walk out of school for 15 minutes and you should protest your government. When in reality, what we probably should have been telling them is instead of walking out of your class for 15 minutes, do you realize that you have the inherent power within yourself to walk over to that student that feels alienated, that feels isolated, that is probably dealing with things at home that you can't even imagine and is desperate for somebody to just come over and speak a little bit of hope and love into their life? You have that inherent power. You don't got to wait on a bill. You don't got to wait on a politician. You don't got to wait on an election. You can do it right now. But more and more, we are teaching people in this country, and especially our youth, that the only way they can affect positive change within their lives, within their families, within their communities, is by using the coercive power of government to compel people to do something that they might not want to do. Exactly. And exactly. until we get back to the point, until we get back to the point where we realize that each individual has the power within them to affect change through voluntary cooperation. We're going to continue to have these incredibly bitter battles over what the government is doing because it's no longer about limited constitutional government. It's about using the government to compel other people to do what you want them to. And it's very, very hard to have a civil society that has adopted yes. that as a core political philosophy. And, and what better way to do that than to pick any of the thousand district judges of your choices and to say, look, that's it. You can't you can't shoot at him in an election. I mean, electorally, you can't get rid of him. Um, and uh, it's immutable. It's it. The only recourse is to amend the Constitution or he gets overturned. But then even when the Supreme Court does, he comes back for a second and a third and a fourth round. And I mean, it's a perfect system that they created um, this coercion. So, look, I'm not capable of having you on for less than an hour. That's the problem. We're going to have to have you back again. Um, where do people go to find out more about your campaign? If they go to uh, nick4va.com, that's N-I-C-K. F-O-R-V-A.com. And then please follow us on social media. We put a lot of content out there because it's one of the best ways to get around some of the mainstream manipulation of what our message is and what we're trying to say. So nickforva.com and please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I've even got a TikTok account. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. You're up, up on the times. Well, there you go. Nickforva.com. Folks, Virginia's 7th Congressional District. This is the very district you're going to need to swing the House, but also to actually elect a new crop of Republicans. Folks, come on, don't tell me that you'd rather focus on Bernie versus Biden or whatever is going on there than actually having engaging, conservative, articulate candidates um, in Republican primaries. That is more important. That's something that our audience could influence a lot more. I wish my colleagues would do the same. Thank you, Nick, for joining us. Guys, we're way out of time. Have a terrific week. God bless y'all, and thank you for listening. Thank you.